Well, let's start right here at the Hirschhorn Museum, where two works from the Panzer Collection are on view, reduced and a rubble ball thrown on the sea. Both works are what you call statements and may be realized in any format, in any context, by anyone or not at all. Karl Panzer, who has been dedicated to art and enthusiastic about collecting since 1956, obviously understood your work. He acquired 39 works altogether. What was it like meeting him and when did you meet first and did the relationship develop? Panzer was happily found what I was doing interesting as he found the work of many other artists interesting. But uh, he had acquired these works from public exhibitions in galleries and such, and I had never met him. I was in Torino working on a book, and I was there with my companion and my daughter. And I got a phone call through the gallery from Ponzo de Bumo asking if I would come to Milano and then we could go up to Varese and see the place in Varese. And uh, I don't know, I said, I, I, listen, I can't really, uh, I'm in the middle of working on things and anyway, I'm traveling with my daughter and daughter, and he said, I have five children, come to lunch. <laughs> and then he added on because he obviously paid more attention to other people than I was and said, you know, like your, your wife has a fast car, why don't you just come to Milano? And I didn't know what we were getting into, so we got in the car, we drove there, and walked into his apartment in Milan where the lunch was. And I was, for life, a sucker. He had a beautiful tapis in the house. In his bedroom was a Klein, and that, was, that did it for me. That was two of my <laughs> immediately favorite artists, and, and I have a long, long list of favorite artists. And the conversation developed, and over those years, uh, a relationship developed, but it had very little to do with what was being acquired, what he was acquiring, what he was doing, uh, always would come as a sort of a surprise of uh, a telephone call or, or so from a, a dealer saying, a punzer came in, he really liked that, he bought that, is that okay? And it was always okay. And over the years, one developed a very nice relationship mm -hmm. with his wife and, and himself. But the great thing was if you did get to the Ponza collection, there would be things you'd never see, like a garage done by a, a garage that was turned then into a speak, uh, sort of a stable garage, into a Maria Nordman, into this, into a Robert Irwin. Uh, he had a living relationship with his art. And to this day, we just, Alice and I just saw him at the Dia. Uh, the majority of the conversation was about something he had seen that he was excited about. And it wasn't really just about acquisition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Even when he was here, I mean, you can tell he's totally passionate about art and really It's not about passionate. He's one of those people that he, he's a, a businessman, you know. He, you know, real estate, Bernie Bronca, olive oil, all sorts of things that people make their living from. But he figured out at an early age, both he and his wife, that it wasn't about collecting, it was about getting to use. Mm -hmm. And for me, one of the most important factors of making art is that it has a use factor within the society. Mm -hmm. People use it. And when art, as Ponzo was attracted to just by luck, 
that doesn't have a metaphor. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell you about something. It is something. Uh, that allows any other human being to be able to take that work and build a metaphor to understand their own existence. Mm -hmm. It's people don't quite understand why I'm intrigued by Caspar David Friedrich. Uh, standing, looking at the glacier, looking at the water. It's his back. It doesn't tell you who you have to be in order to do that. Mm -hmm. There's no metaphor. <laughs> and it means it's useful for other people. Were there other artists or philosophers or writers who had an impact on your work, on your thinking that made you excited? I can't give you, you that one that? because uh, I discovered over the years, as you get older, you get interviewed so often that you're always going to forget somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's much better to say, yes, I was highly influenced by an awful lot of other artists, and I was aided and abetted and assisted by an awful lot of other artists. But you don't need a list. You're in the middle of the Hirshhorn Museum. Just uh, whatever they may have missed in their collecting, as Carrie said, uh, they still have enough that I, I think I could, I could make you a list out of that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you said at some point that each exhibition is supposed to be a surprise. Does this Panza exhibition at the Hirschhorn has a, some surprise for you? No. No. <laughs> no, but uh, listen, there, there, when I said that each exhibition it was about uh, contemporary people, I, I have a problem. Uh, I'm really only happy that I went out to see an exhibition when I walk in and I don't get it. Oh. I, and it doesn't matter who it is. And okay, I'm a fast read. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an artist. I'm, I'm, I've been around a long time, but when you don't get it, and it might even take you anywhere from a minute to a couple of months to get it, that's what you go to look at art for. Exactly. So that's what I meant by surprise. Yeah. Okay. But as far as coming in and seeing this work, it's nice to see some of it. Uh, I haven't seen an Irwin presented that well in a very long time of this of that period. But on and on, there's many things in the, in the exhibition. Well, let's turn to the text. What led you to work predominantly with text? I don't really know. I mean, I do know. Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing when I say I don't really know and I say I do know. It became an obvious choice for me. I would, from the very beginning, wanted to be able to deal with the general aspects of material in relation to human beings. There's a problem about being an artist, is that nobody believes you often that the thing that makes a work of art great, that makes a, a Mondrian or a Pollock or a Klein, is that once it's done and you see it and you, you understand what its use is, anybody can do it. And there's always this problem when you say, yes, we're talking about one stone and another stone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're talking about stone and steel. They're convinced that your choice of stone is going to be better than theirs, when that wasn't the point at all, and language led me into that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I was born into a culture in New York City that at that particular moment uh, even was a dominant language. So when I presented it somewhere, and I usually present work in the language of the country it's in, as well as in English, uh, it was understood. Yeah. There was no misunderstandings. English was, it was just by luck. It would be like being born into a country that used oil paint to express themselves. And if you look at the language, it's really just oil paint or it's acrylic. It's, it's just what it is. 
let's go to your, Kerry uh, uh, already talked about your seminal statement that you wrote in 1968. Yeah. I'd like to read it again because I think it's a good idea for sort of to process it. I can recite it. it for you if you like. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's, um, let's read it. The artist may construct the work. Yes. The work may be fabricated. The work need not to be built. Need not be built. I, as, a, as, as a matter of fact, the initial time when I published it, it said need not to be built, which it turns out is not correct, American English. It's the same with work, right? Because yes, Kelly work. wrote peace. No, there's peace, there's work. work. No, peace and work, and I think I changed it back to work later. Now, each being equal and consistent with the intent of the artist, the decision as to condition rests with the receiver upon the occasion of receivership. Mm -hmm. So you really leave a lot of responsibility with uh, those that receive the work. Yeah, but what do you, who do you make art for? You make art for somebody else. There's no logical reason to make art for yourself. You, you basically are trying to, to build a structure, to build a, 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 an object that other people can understand. But you understand it already. You have to take all this trouble to put it together. You also said anyone making a reproduction of my art is making art just as valid as I have made it. And this pertains to another question I want to ask. You have made works for public freehold. Does it mean that anyone can have the work in public freehold if they are done according to your specification? No, or it has nothing any longer to do with me. It's, I took a, a portion uh, once it became obvious that the work was entering into the world. And that was in the, in the late 60s already, in mm -hmm. the 60s already, that it was entering into the world. There was going to be a problem here uh, because I wanted people to be able to use it. But I, I really don't believe in appropriation. I think mm -hmm. appropriation sucks. Mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense whatsoever. So I designated a certain portion of work of mine publicly that if somebody really was desperate to have a work of mine and they had no way, means, or otherwise to be able to afford it, they'd be able to use it, but they couldn't use my name. Uh -huh. They had to say, that is a work of art. And that's what it is, and I'll, I'll stand, they'll stand behind it. Right. So, if there are 50 so again, I was engaging them within a conversation, but right. they had to right. do it, and if they used me to attribute that it was mine, right. I would then, God knows what, I, I never had a lawsuit in my life about anything <laughs> to do with art, but uh, I, I would do something. I, I would make it clear that I thought the person was an asshole because they're, they're getting something that they want and all they're asked for is to just, and, and it's not, they're, they're just having to say that is a work of art because, and to tell why, with leaving me out. So that was it. And there's a certain percentage of work I still do that way because I don't like people to have to steal. And I do believe that if, if something is worth stealing, it's certainly worth buying. Mm -hmm. And it's not a problem. It, it works reasonably well. It's very rarely abused. It's more abused by institutions who queue all up and say things like, can't we use this freehold work in that thing? And you say it was designed just for exhibitions. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea. Why don't you borrow the other, another work from somebody? The, I don't know how that all works. I did borrow for one of the exhibitions mm. your yes, freehold work, which I, gave I actually, you which I actually didn't even know that it was freehold. You yeah. reminded me of that. And it just has to say it has to have my permission and say courtesy of the artist. It's not a big deal. Okay. 
and it was very exciting to just have yeah. the work, your permission, but also knowing that there is something called freehold mm -hmm. for the public. Which but it exists. I mean, all work exists, all decent work of any artist exists. Once it's put out into the world, it's there. You, they, they, you're not going to lose it because you don't have it in your hand. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit more concrete question, uh, if I may. Uh, you know, when I saw your booklet, Statements for the first time, it was so amazing to me because it was incredibly simple. And I think that its simplicity really was made especially by the typeface that you used. And I realized over a period of time how carefully you use the typefaces in all of your works. And I understand that you have even created your own, but maybe you also have an aversion to some. Could you talk about that? Oh, you're going to bring me into the fact that I don't particularly like Helvetica. No, I didn't uh, say that. I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 I just, I don't like what it stands for, and I don't like that it's authoritative. I, I attempted to try to find means of presenting things that carried with them the authority of their content rather than the authority of their context. But statements itself is often misunderstood. Statements is not meant as utterances. Mm -hmm. It was an exhibition. It was a book, uh, and in the book there was a certain number of works presented, which mm -hmm. is what you do in an exhibition catalog. But statement is what you get at the end of the month that tells you exactly <laughs> what it is you're getting. You know, it, it was this thing that comes that says three typewriter ribbons, four uh, cans of white paint, and five brushes, and you owe now you know seventy-two dollars. That was that's the way the statement was not as an utterance. And the other thing was that not a declaration of intent. I don't think the world was waiting for me to declare anything. I think it was a statement of intent, okay? So statement has a double meaning. Um, you said that space in the work itself produces a certain amount of energy mm. and that you prefer to show things publicly in urban situations because it is more of a challenge. Can you talk about these challenges? I don't remember it being a challenge, but uh, I think that it normalizes work when you when you can deal with things. I, I like art galleries even more than I like museums mm -hmm. uh, because mm -hmm. people can walk in, it's free, and uh, they're confronted by something often that they've never seen, and they have to think about it. But maybe they'll get nervous, maybe they'll laugh, maybe they'll feel, oh, this is really stupid. But when they walk out, they don't think they missed something. In a museum, people have a tendency to think they mm -hmm. missed something because it's already got the nomenclature of being art. But urban situations, I'm an urban person. Uh, I've done a lot of work out in the country, especially in the Tyrol and mm -hmm. in places where the work is really rather gorgeous when you see it out there. But in the end, it's still the same work. Do you do a lot of research once you work in some urban spaces or is it it's the same amount of research as you would do for the galleries, you know, in terms of how large the work is, how yeah, is it positioned? Yeah, that's technical. Within? That's just pure technical. Uh, I don't do site-specific work. Uh, often, if I'm invited someplace to do something, I'll pay attention to who's invited, what's inviting me, and if they happen to be producing coal in that area, I'll try to figure out if at that moment I am interested in coal. But a lot of works of mine that have found a place that everybody thinks is just happily, everybody thinks it's just perfect where it is. 
has been shown somewhere, somewhere, that it finally, it's like water finds its own level. It, it found the place where it was, where it is, and then it, it seems to be that still the case. I happen to absolutely love your work in Paradox Papers. And do you mind if I would ask you questions about some of them specifically? Uh, for example, uh, there is a, a piece called Smashed to Pieces in a Still of the Night. From, it's from 1981. This is installed in German and English in a flat room. It's a World War II anti-aircraft defense tower in Vienna. Is this work about the stimulation of memory? Would you believe me if I told you <laughs> that that had nothing whatsoever to do with Kristallnacht and uh, it's now become a part of Vienna's uh, patrimony. Mm -hmm. They even redid it when the, the paint began to go after 15 years or something. And uh, when they went out in the street and they asked people about it, they were all rather enthusiastic and everything else, but they didn't know who did it. That wasn't the point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is about the fact if you've ever wandered home from a club at 4.15 in the morning and hear a bottle break, it sounds totally different than if you're at 4.15 in the afternoon and a bottle I breaks. Agree. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was about. It was all about what it says it's about. There's nothing hidden in what I'm doing. I find that sculpturally a rather interesting thing, that sound is completely different in the still of the night than it is during the afternoon. But of course you leave it to the receivership to make their own interpretations. Does it bother you when the interpretation is different? Because I could imagine that maybe in Vienna, they are not thinking, or maybe as a, a certain group of people from a certain generation, that it's necessarily the broken bottle. Well, Kristallnacht happened all over, but that did in Vienna. Secondly, uh, you're asking about Vienna, but I shared that in Vienna, and I shared that in Amsterdam. But artists that I have had such admiration for have made this total error that they leave it out to you. And uh, telling somebody to stand five feet from a is supposed to be that way. Nobody's eyes are the same. Nobody can say hi. And um, why not just make something that you put out into the world? And the problem that people then confront is what the hell to do with it. Not all yeah. the little rules and all the little things you have to do to it in order to be able to even get to the point of finding out what it is you're supposed to do with it. Why do you want to do this? Art's not about that. Art's not about imposition. It's about presentation. It's also about, in that presentation, present a logic structure that makes enough sense and is on the table that if somebody really wants to use it, they have to change their own damn logic structure in order to be able to use it. That's more than enough to ask of a society, besides enough to eat. That's something that's definitely a problem for artists. But, I mean, how much do you expect when you make a work? want for people to come into it, but to come into it, they have to give up. Remember, artists are real terrorists in that sense. <laughs> no, I, I realized this years ago, and, and I've been in conversation recently again with people about this. You bring a logic structure. You look at another way to see materials and relationships to materials. You're asking people to give up their furniture. Mm -hmm. You're asking people to change their drinks for some change. Um, give up your dream or your idea of a comfortable life in order to be able to make a work that you can hang up and hang up and hang up and hang up. 
basically was saying, or at least I could interpret it saying, take yourself more seriously so that you can amount to something. But it was also done in 1989, which of course for me symbolized the end of the communism because it's also the end of the Berlin Wall. Did any of that enter your thinking? Not a, no. not a, a whit, <laughs> and it's not a work. It's an aphorism. And my feeling is, is that if I've been capable of making sculpture using language, I can also make drawings using language. And drawings are always about aphorisms. They're about how you feel and what you feel. And I don't even think it began, it began for the Friedens Biennale. Mm -hmm. I don't remember mm -hmm. the, uh, the date in Hamburg on a poster. Yeah, I think and the poster was in 1986, at least I, I have no I, idea. I remember, I, yeah. I'm very bad on dates. I, I'll remember the show, but I don't remember the date. But I then I was asked to do a, a public piece in Hamburg in the harbor, and we built that ship, which isn't there any longer. Somebody stole it. Really? Yeah, for real. I don't know. <laughs> and, and all the people in the harbor were so, they thought they'd hate it. They, they, they pulled it out at the ice every, every winter. Uh, sailors would row their kids out and put it on it to photograph them and all. And then somehow or other it disappeared one day. So it ain't there. There was another one in Sudley Castle that ducks on a pond and ships and on and, and about on and in the water. But it's, yes, okay, it was my own aphorism about the fact that we are ships at sea, we are mm -hmm. not ducks on a pond. But it's an aphorism. And it came way. from what I learned about life by making art. And there are lots of aphorisms, you know, yeah, mine house is thine house, thine house and is mine house. Yeah, if you shit on the floor, it gets on your feet. That, that, that's that's sort another of, one. That, that, that's sort of, I mean, these are things that everybody knows. Is that a call to action? No, that's, that's <laughs> literally a call to being neat and clean, I think. <laughs> it was designed for the Air opening color. of the Secession in Vienna, oh. when they rebuilt it. It was on a little plaque, and it said, mine house is thine house, thine house is mine house. Okay, they put it up, and the world didn't come to an end. People accepted it, but except they kept stealing it. So they eventually <laughs> epoxied it to the wall, and then somebody cut the wall out. <laughs> so they then put the <laughs> remaining ones, because they were running out of them, in the gift shop, and they sold it, and that was the end of it. And I just saw one recently in the retrospective at K21. It's funny, I had that poster. I think maybe you oh, gave the it posters, to me. Oh, the posters, yeah. And guess that we what? did that with Art Angel Trust. And guess what? What? Stolen. <laughs> well, you see, now you asked me why in the beginning I designed something that was public real to stop people having to steal things. I guess that is the answer, isn't it? <laughs> um, one other piece, uh, or one other work that you made uh, really excited me also. I mean, all of them exciting, but this was really special. Um, for the participation at the Reykjavik Art Festival in 2005, mm. and I think we had some images, you set several planks of is. wood adrift from Westman Islands. Yes. And on each, you printed the word, work, a pursuit of happiness, A-S-A-P. Yes. And, and of course, part of the statement is taken from the U.S. Constitution. 
the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. Yes. So what happened by changing? What happened is one of the wonderful things about an artist <laughs> is, is that you want to do something that's not possible. Right. And what is not possible to, is to objectify desire. But when you take the pursuit of happiness and you change it to a pursuit of mm -hmm. happiness, you've objectified desire. Yeah. And that ain't bad. I mean, that's pretty good. And the putting them out in the Western Islands, that's really, uh, I have had a, a quite a few shows and I did a public piece in the North uh, for a university that was, it was a poor country and uh, a lot of people had to become truck drivers and work at things and they never could get an education. Mm -hmm. Then it became a richer country at one point and they built this university up in the North uh, and they made it possible for some of these people who had become long distance truck drivers who had three kids to come with their whole family and go back to school. And the interesting thing there was the preponderance of people wanted to be librarians, school teachers and things like that. And so you had these, this university that was filled with people who looked like Hell's Angels <laughs> with their families <laughs> going to become librarians. Uh, I like Iceland for that reason, that, that intrigued me. And they, Iceland, Reykjavik was founded by the, the, the history, the story, that they didn't know what, where to go in because they, they were absolutely consummate sailors, but they were not very good about where to land, even in Britain, which they took over. They landed in all the wrong places. <laughs> they, they kept smashing up their ships. So they threw these log, the, 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 the chair that the chief would sit on they broke down the four posts, they threw them in, and wherever that went was Reykjavik. So I decided I would have these flags done. Mm -hmm. And an Icelandic artist offered to cut them mm -hmm. and do the, the woodworking. And we went out on a boat and we threw them out. And they've never turned up. They never turned up. Nobody, because it was <laughs> in Icelandic on one side and English on the other. And it's a small place. So you'd figure that if it did come into shore any place or if a ship found it or something, somebody would hear about it. They never, ever reappeared, and they're totally seaworthy. They're, if they're floating, they're still floating. <laughs> um, Lawrence, um, I once asked you whether you believe that art has or can have any effect on politics, and then we also discussed um, what's the difference between emotional political dimension and the real politics. Could you... I'm, you, I'm, you a, I'm, I'm an artist. You're asking me to decide, to determine what the difference between real politic and uh, heroic politic is, really. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, art, art, of course, has, has an influence on politics, very often the wrong one. Uh, most fascism has come about by an emergence of uh, expressionist art in all cultures, and this is becoming quite obvious even in... Uh, parts of Africa where art was allowed to determine itself and it, it went in a way of total expressionism and you get total horror afterwards. Uh, that happened in Europe and it mm -hmm. comes and goes in the United States. But as far as it being able to change, yes, it changes the logic structure. And in changing that logic structure, again, there's this problem of the anecdotal because I don't really want to be giving things. I, I have my politics that I think that mm -hmm. all people don't get out of bed in the morning 
uh, and go to work unless they have some sense of politics. But I'm convinced that if you can give dignity to a stone and you can understand the dignity of the relationship of a human being to a stone, uh, you can understand the dignity of another human being. I was very tired one day in Chicago and mm -hmm. I was doing a talk and it, it was very cold out. And I said that and somebody from the audience, well-meaning but being a little bit friendly, said, oh, Lawrence, stop that. You know, come on, what do you mean dignity to a stone? And I thought, oh, Jesus, you really are tired. I've just been four days in the University of Pennsylvania doing some pro bono thing. No, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then I realized, you're in a city like Chicago, and it's Ries van der Rohe, mm -hmm. everywhere you turn. And that gives everybody a sense of empowerment. Not entitlement, but empowerment, which is what art does. Art empowers other people to feel that they have a sense of who they are in relation to the real world and of material objects and culture, that cultures are objects. And all the definition that Ries van der Rohe gave about being what architecture, what culture was, was the careful placement of truth and grace. Mm -hmm. Ergo, yes, I do think that uh, making certain kinds of work public helps other people to determine a form of politics that might be more amenable to my idea of what civilization is, okay? Mm -hmm. Thank and you. Uh, we have these words floating around. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, this one is a socialist, this one is that. Mm. They, they, these words don't mean anything anymore. They don't. No, it's about redetermining. Now art is supposed to be, every time you see the work of an artist, uh, you're supposed to be able to stand still for a split second and redetermine your preconceptions. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't do that, it's not working as art, and mm -hmm. it's corny, and I've said it before, art is this thing that floats, that people put out in the world, and it really doesn't have any place to go. Mm -hmm. And in trying to get there, it bangs into this, and it bangs into that, maybe breaks this or breaks that, but eventually it enters into the culture and it comes down on this table of the accomplishments of human beings, but then it's art history. Asked me about the surprise upstairs. Mm -hmm. No, those were things that already have influenced uh, the world. Yeah. It's nice for people who have never seen things, mm -hmm. but it ain't no surprise. Given that it's impossible to achieve, could you describe the ideal viewer response to your work? This exhibition, the Tonzo thing, there are things in there that changed your predetermined idea of stones and this and that and the other thing. Well, after that's been changed, the world's turned. Well, uh, also the whole world's different than it was before you walked in. When you see maybe the work when it was made, maybe there was a slightly different reaction to when looking at the work <sighs> now, but maybe not. I don't know. That, that, that's sort of like this, this living in, in, in history is like those people sitting around that never were on a rugby pitch or they ever played, <laughs> played basketball that know all the scores and all the names and all the dates and all the time. It doesn't mean shit in the end. <laughs> I, I'm serious and I don't mean to be funny and I don't mean to be rude. Uh, when you have to base your appreciation of a work of art that you're seeing of somebody's on the appreciation of somebody else's work that came before, you got a problem. 
yes, it could be related. Yes, it could be obvious. They can say, gee, I wouldn't have understood this if I hadn't seen the Trappiers. I wouldn't have understood this if I hadn't seen the, the Pollock or the de Kooning or the Klein or the Chamberlain or the, the Andre or the this. The names just go on. Yeah, fine. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to know anything. No work of mine do you have to know anything. And That's I true. do enough sound work and I do enough things that are on the radio and enough records and incorporate words into, into, into songs that people could even dance to that you don't even have to know how to read. You just have to know some language that somehow or other comes to you and it can be any language. I don't want mm -hmm. to have, uh, I'm not, you know, what is that, that, that store, or an educated consumer is the best customer or something like that. No, I, I, don't, I don't believe that person that's willing to accept their need for art, their need for mm -hmm. a relationship with human beings to objects in order to understand who they are is what I'm looking for, okay? But, yes. you know, a lot of people want people who think they're brilliant. I, I'm not brilliant. I'm real good at what I do. And uh, it's like something that my friend always reminds people about, Duke Ellington, uh, Wapak's uh, musician. He said somebody who practices every day that's about the answer that I'd like to say about art is it's somebody who practices every day. And there is no perfect, so it's just all you're going to do is practice.